morning, and welcome to the Epoch Hour. I'm your host, Samantha Mosca, and today I'll be in conversation with Kirsten Renault. Today, we're going to talk about how to write, and how to write CNF in particular. Thank you for being a guest on our show. We are really excited to talk with you. Um, you were the featured author for issue one for our inaugural issue. I was. Um, thank you so much for inviting me to come talk on the show. I am looking forward to chatting about CNF and writing and all that good stuff. Yeah, so if our listeners aren't familiar, you can check out the blog at epochpress.org where you can read Kirsten's story. First, there was a comb jelly, which is excellent. And if you'd like to see the interview, we had quite a long interview, uh, but you can check that out on the blog as well. We had a good time talking about your piece and the symbolism and like a lot. We had a good time talking about a lot of stuff, really. We had a good time, period. Yeah, we like went through all this stuff. It's a complimentary interview to what you're about to listen to I'm sure <laughs> yes I think so I do um and definitely um we have a lot to say about about writing and we had a lot then to say <laughs> about writing I think that's one thing that, that writers always have it's just like sort of a constant stream of thought about about writing and maybe this episode isn't for somebody who um necessarily like I don't know needs to take a, a writing course or something like we're we're not going to talk about the technical aspect I think as much we may touch touch on that but um also at Epoch we don't really care we don't really care if you've taken a class we don't care if you have any uh educate like academic experience in writing that's not what makes a good writer and uh I personally uh, have a love-hate relationship with those environments. How do you feel about like academic writing environments? Because you just finished some. some of I that. yeah, I graduate with my MFA next month, which is crazy. Ah. Um, <laughs> it's wild. I think that they can be really, really helpful at first, and I think a skill that I got out of it was definitely learning who to listen to and who not to, and how much to listen to people. Um, no one is always universally, unanimously correct in how they interpret your writing, but some people are more helpful than others and some readers are more helpful than others. I think honestly, the best part about doing any kind of like academic writing setting is just building relationships with other writers. And you don't necessarily have to do that. Like you can find those things on Twitters and through literary journals and just sort of like being engaged in the community. But I think that academic settings like MFA programs or just, you know, general writing programs or just like meeting at the coffee shop every Tuesday for a month with a group of writers in the community definitely help you find that sort of like people that you can exchange work with for a very long time and like becomes friends with and are able to do this sort of shop talk. Because you're right, writers love to talk about writing. We <laughs> love it. <laughs> and so it's fun to be able to just sort of like shop talk and talk through whatever you're working on with someone who understands your vision and what you are working with. Yeah, I think that's that's something that I always felt like really reluctant, or that's not the right word, that I always felt was really lacking in a lot of academic settings for me because you're thrown together with writers um, and, and it's good, it's good in a sense, like lots of variety, but you're also like thrown into a pit with people who may not necessarily understand or like your style and 
even if they don't, even if you're putting out pieces that your like workshop people are 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 saying, you know, this doesn't work or I don't like this or I don't get it, which happens to me. <laughs> it happens to me a lot, but I don't get it. It's weird to me, but um you can still find like a home for your writing. Like you have to understand that these these you can shop around for workshops. You can shop around much yes. easier than you can for just like academic settings. Like, you can't necessarily predict what that setting's going to be like and it's sort of a big financial investment, time investment, location investment. Uh, yeah, seriously. For you to switch that up as much. But and I think that's like local workshops and things. Exactly. Well, in online workshops now too, with like the boom of being able to do writing stuff online, which has been a great thing of the past year. But like, yeah, and there is there's real value, I think, coming out of being people who maybe don't like what I'm writing, but can push past that to be like, this is why it's not working for me. Like versus just, I don't get it. And I'm like, okay, why? Like, is yes. the characterization not working? Is the formatting not operating? Is it too unclear in the beginning? Like, what's not happening? Versus, I just don't like it. I'm like, okay, well, that's not a helpful critique. You just don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> I also need relationships when it comes to workshopping where I can send somebody the first draft that I have. Because something yeah. that happens for me is that I write something and that's kind of the end of the inspiration <laughs> unless there's some feedback back into my brain so i need like i need people i need environments where i can send you something that might actually be uh shit for lack of a better word like yes. I need, it's where you can go like hey okay like what i'm if they can see the potential or like the kernel of what i'm getting at and and also not judge me as a writer for that <laughs> that initial like yeah. <laughs> that's what I need that's what I'm looking for in the world is people I can be like can you just like read this and tell me because I can't look at it anymore and I've only done one draft but I, like, I can't my brain says no more no thank you I'm consistently I think that there should be like a service for like writing speed dates once a month to find like a partner because I think there's real value in workshops where you are sending to like five or six people and in that case those are often the pieces I want to be like so very polished in that like there is something innately wrong with it and I don't know what like I've worked on this so long and there's something not happening and four people need to figure out what it is versus being able to just like have someone you bounce back and forth with and being like I wrote this all in two hours where do I go next like does this make yeah. any sense <laughs> yes <laughs> and those one-on-one yeah. -on -one relationships are so helpful and so important especially when you're just like cultivating lots of work and you just want to get a lot of stuff out yeah which is like I've I've had that experience a bit this year which I think is why it's at like the 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 top of my brain and I found mm -hmm. that in some academic settings because we want to be considerate people and we want to be careful we want to be conscientious that um some of the like workshops that I've had in academic settings were very like softball you know it felt yeah. it felt very much like they're everybody's uh, holding their punches, you know, pulling, that's the phrase, everybody's yeah. pulling their punches, which is, <laughs> which is fine. We want to be, we want to have like an environment where we're not sending writers away, like so disenchanted and disillusioned and uh, anything. But I think too, there, there has to be some, there has to be some cutting, right? Like, like it yeah. doesn't necessarily have to be, <laughs> it doesn't necessarily have to be like, violent 
you know, you can have like scalpel precision. But Exactly. Well, and ideally, um, I think one, ideally, if you are going into workshop past a certain point in your writing career, um, a bad workshop should not be what turns you off to writing, right? Yeah, I mean, should. Um, and hopefully right and <laughs> like hopefully right but also like i mean that's for me it's like why workshop is the time to try your weirdest stuff like mm. workshop is definitely the time to be like i wrote this as a quiz <laughs> what do you think <laughs> like, and i think too like there's something to that like your weirdest stuff may not like your most experimental uh may not be the some the thing that you've poured your heart into anyway right because exactly. you're taking you're taking a, a sideways glance at in terms of like creative nonfiction, you're taking a sideways glance at your life. So yeah. you remove yourself by being experimental sometimes. I think some experimental forms can put you like more into it. Like if you're like, oh, I'm gonna have this is gonna be all like journal entries. Well, I can see that being like a bit closer to your heart than than your standard linear narrative. Yeah. Something I talk a lot about when writing and when people are first writing creative nonfiction is figuring out your in. And I think sometimes the in is the form itself. I love like interesting, weird forms. I think they're really fun. And sometimes that can be what allows you to write the thing in the way it needs to be written. You know, just having this like input thing. So like I wrote a piece a really long time ago that it's all just based around like different pictures of graffiti that I had taken. Yes, yeah, I read this piece <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I was a fan of it immediately, but please go on. But yeah, so it was, I had been trying to write about, you know, all these sort of feelings. It was just about like this one single year. It was about like this relationship blooming and the Kavanaugh hearings had just finished. And I was having all these feelings about like being a woman in this world of inherited violence and starting this relationship and like how do these things coexist and how do we be happy with ourselves and how do we handle our the ghosts of our past and I was having all these big feelings and I kept writing and it was really bad um like I kept trying to write like <laughs> linear memoir work and I would write like two paragraphs and I was like okay that's that like no more so having that really strict time focused thing allowed me to write these vignettes that allowed the piece to become all these big feelings but I, it couldn't have happened if it wasn't under that sort of like really strict concept in the beginning yeah yeah definitely I, I love that piece too because I think that even like the art of graffiti speaks to a lot right like it's it's this modern way that we write on cave walls so like artistically it has this sort of like ancient feeling this timeless feeling while also being permanent and not permanent because it's like constantly changing constantly being washed or painted over uh and then you had them you were it was graffiti in bathrooms and bars yeah like this, <laughs> bar bathroom graffiti it's, like I loved it this beautiful like way to connect experiences because when you're somebody who's like in bars frequently you're at a point in your life where that's part of your experience you know this it's just like instantly recognizable everybody and obviously there's graffiti and bathrooms all over not not regulated to bars but like as somebody who's been a bartender and a bar manager and a waitress and a hostess and everything that you can imagine that has been like a fundamental part of my experience so it's such a cool like way to frame <laughs> Like life, like if I had ever thought about it, like I could have framed moments of my life based on 
these moments sitting in a bathroom in a bar because that's that's part of it that's all part of it so it's a beautiful I think lesson to take for any writer like certainly I learned from it that you can take these mundane or almost invisible experiences like as memorable as bathroom graffiti is it's also like this invisible thing and it's something you pass by very quickly it's not something you like sit and linger and I you think about the bar bathroom graffiti for many weeks later and it like really sits in your brain it's something like you enjoy and you're like that's funny picture out (laughs) like yeah yeah exactly and I mean in defense I guess of academic writing context is that the work it forces you to produce is that that piece only came about because I was like I have to write three things for class like I guess this is one of them (laughs) well that that is the beautiful that is something that I love about the academic setting is deadlines and demands and assignments (laughs) yeah but they're always like what I like about them is what's different to me than let's say so I'm also a photographer and I'm I just recently like uh joined a Facebook group where a professional photographer runs and um just to just to see because I'm moving into create like starting my business so I'm like okay what's going on and she does these like it's the five day challenge. So you have to take these photos and I hate it. Like, I don't want to do your prompts. I don't, <laughs> yeah. I don't want to do your prompts. And I've always felt that way about writing too. You know, you're, if anybody's had this experience as a teenager, some like aunt or parent or friend is like, I have the perfect gift for you. And you open it up and it's a gift of writing prompts. It's a prompt book. It's always a prompt book. <laughs> no, I don't want to write a story where there's like a blue sock and a sunrise and like a empty bottle of water make these all into a story like i i i'm repulsed by them and i don't it's probably there's probably nothing wrong with it i just don't like them they just don't usually work for me i think they are typically more specific i would much rather just be given like a title to run off of or a list of things or just like a thing um the problem is typically they are so specific. They're like, write two pages about when you were 16. And I'm like, no, I don't want to. Like, I do not wish to do that. Yeah. I've only encountered one prompt book in my entire life that I really love. And I recommend it to everyone. So I'll recommend Ooh, it to what you is it? and everyone listening to this podcast. It's called Thinking About Memoir. It's by Abigail Thomas. And it's great. It's very small. It's very tiny. And I love it because she scatters the prompts throughout the book and she's just like writes along with it she just like tells little stories and then she's like prompt right she's like I have a problem with eBay I write I like can't stop buying things she tells like a little story and then she's like prompt write two pages about what you didn't buy I'm like that's great that's nice thank you Abigail (laughs) I love talking to you because I always come away with like 10 book recommendations um and I I like I don't like I'm repulsed, I think, by like the what feels like the condescending nature of a lot of prompts. Probably is what it is. Like I don't like that. Because in my in my master's course, um Mm -hmm. we had you write on like everything, right? You take a poetry, you take all all these different things. And so um in the memoir class and the or in the creative nonfiction, uh we did memoir as one thing. It was creative nonfiction was the class. But um Mm -hmm with travel writing. So you have to read a bunch of travel writing. And then, um, so the piece that I did for that class, I recently like went through and edited and it is being published in Epoch 
Press's second issue. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Um, for anybody wondering, I do work for Epoch Press, but the submissions are, are anonymous, so nobody knew it was my piece. Blind, blind, blind readings. Yes, yes. When we have, it's, I write the rejection letters as well, so I get to see when we've rejected our staff, which is always, I hate writing, those are the ones I hate writing the most. I'm like, I did one recently, and I, it was somebody who was, um, their piece wasn't that bad, but I was in a bad mood, so like my rating like they wouldn't have gone on it wasn't like unreasonable but i was like a yeah. little bit too harsh in my review and i should have been a little bit nicer it's hard um, right <laughs> so anyway it was this piece that is is published in the upcoming issue that comes out first of may which you'll be hearing actually after it's come out aftermath is the theme and so this is a travel piece but it's mm -hmm. actually um about grief as a place that you mm. go to. So it's meant to, um, it, it kind of, the, it frames, grief as a place frames the story of yeah. my experience of the last week of my mom's life. So mm. um, the, and like the, the day after as well. So anyway, uh, funnily enough, grief is very similar to like Louisiana uh <laughs> where there's swamps Ooh, yeah <laughs> and things that makes a lot of sense <laughs> <laughs> so um anyway i think that the prompts like that like it was just given a genre and you just have to do it because you're being graded because there's some impetus on you to create something that falls within that i feel like i work really well in that framework because uh i otherwise tend to just not do things that i'm not obligated to do <laughs> Exactly. It's the deadlines that we were talking about earlier. It's helpful to have just accountability. There's just an accountability to write and produce. And even if it's not like amazing work, work that's good enough that you can step away and return to it later, like whenever later is, um, and just mess with it again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that's something that I always had a, I had a really big problem with as well as a writer for a lot of my life uh, was, I just didn't want to go back. I didn't want to look at stuff I was finished with. Like I, I had a really hard time um, editing <laughs> at all because not because I didn't think the piece like would need it. It's just because like, I don't, I don't really want to look at it. I don't really want to focus on it. I just want to write the next thing from the emotional inspiration. Yeah. People, um, people seem to hate editing. I love it. <laughs> I love going back. But also I'm a cutter, you know, so like yeah. I go back and I'm like, time. <laughs> I get like a vague, like maybe this is like not quite working note. And I'm like, great, let's take it out. I'm not going to try and fix it. I'm just chopping it off. <laughs> that works a lot better for me because it's immediate. It's decisive. It's like anytime that I waffle on a thought is time that I feel like it creates like a stress in me internally as a writer like it's just I feel like being decisive is the way to go and it's hard it's not it's not an easy skill to we talk about it we're like yeah just cut it <laughs> but it is really hard to to learn to do it and learn to trust your instincts about what needs to be cut but you also save what you cut anyway right like I you said you have like those like I have many things I have a word doc that's just like other stuff <laughs> it's just like lines that I'm like this is pretty not here 
Um, just throw them all in. And I have like many drafts of things. So I'll have like fireflies, draft one, fireflies, short, fireflies, long, fireflies, micro, like all these different lengths and versions of the same piece. Which is, is really excellent. I, I have like, I'm such a, I don't know what it is about documents. Like I just like, I just want one. I want one of the document in my computer <laughs> for why. I don't know. It has unlimited space, Sam. I know. I'm like, I'm just, I'm just going to delete it because I don't want, I don't, I don't know. You should or make I'll a folder. I'll be like, this alternative draft isn't even that good. Why am I saving this? <laughs> it's, I'm, my, I'm like, yeah, it's dangerous to thing. cut if you're not looking at the actual text. It's <laughs> if you're true. just looking at the save files, you're like, no. no my new thing is saving, like writing first drafts on my notes app because it feels so much less permanent than when I'm writing it in my Word doc. I know that's completely fake, but in my head, I'm like, yeah, let's just bang it out on the notes draft, like doing my work. I have like four pieces and most of my poetry is written on my notes app. Most of my poetry Wait, goes there up, because right? it's, I'm, I don't know, it's three o'clock in the morning and I'm up with my son who's decided that he doesn't want to sleep unless he's in my arms and I'm exhausted. Uh, or um, I can't sleep and it's midnight and my husband's snoring and I have thoughts. I have thoughts. I have regrets. I have things. I need. I, I have need to big feelings and I need to I write have... them down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I found too that like as a writer for me, um, it's not just like catharsis because I think that exists for sure. Definitely. But for me, it's, it's also, I don't, I, if I write something, I stop feeling about it. Like, like, like if I just get this whole experience down, then I don't have to feel things about it anymore. <laughs> I think it's maybe like Vivian Gornick and she wrote Fierce Attachments, which is like a very early memoir that I totally recommend if you haven't read it. It is not one of my favorites, but I think it is a required text. You know, it's like one of those. Um, but I think she said it at one point where once you write it down, that becomes like your new memory about mm. it. Like once you put it on the page and start to cultivate that, that replaces the original memory. And so each time we write something, we get farther and farther away from the original. That explains a lot. It, it makes sense. Once you my... said it, I was like, Vivian, you genius. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's exactly it. Once I write it down, that becomes like sort of where I can handle all this like emotional pain or positive or whatever, like it all can cultivate sort of in that space and I can work with it then versus just these big feelings in my body. Of, like, what do I do with it? You don't, yeah, there's not, I think that was one of the things that like, I, I know specifically with grief, like coming at, um, in 2017, when my mom died, I had like, I mean, I, I felt like it was, you there was nothing to process because it was just big it was just like this infinite sea of of feeling um and I didn't even write about it until a year later I didn't and it just like it came and it all happened at once with this prompt and it just like all it all spilled out and it was all there and uh I'm not, and since then I haven't felt any grief at all <laughs> <laughs> so cold no I I felt some amount of grief but like it hasn't it's not so much this like infinite sea of an experience for me because it's it's condensed it's something that I have I have found what felt like sort of 
the unnameable source of it. I don't know if that makes sense. No, it does. <laughs> I actually, I have a really very similar thematic things. I always think that um, people's brains are like linked somehow because we write about like thematically the same things like at Bayou Magazine where I'm a creative nonfiction editor. We'll just get like four pieces and they'll all just be like have the moon involved in some way and they're like just from four people across totally different spheres of life and I'm just like we're all just like into the moon this week aren't we but (laughs) (laughs) um I have a piece coming out in Vera magazine soon and so by the time this comes out it'll be passed so everyone go back and read my piece but it's called um forgotten what is it called oh my gosh forgotten synonyms for grief and very similarly, it's handling of a friend of mine who died when we were relatively pretty young and years and years later, just handling that all at once. So it just kind of tumbled out. And so once I wrote about that, though, and I'd been trying to write about it many times, right, like just like little pockets and paragraphs where I was like, I am so sad and like, yes. <laughs> like dear, blah, blah, blah. And just like all these different ways. But once it like tumbled out in this, and this is again where I'm like, form is great. Once it tumbled out in this form and I had this like offering, it was just a weight. Like, mm-hmm. of course I still miss him. And of course I still feel that grief, but it doesn't like live so heavily, I guess, in me. Yeah, I think that there's something to that. And as a writer, like if we want, I think that we could probably safely give a bit of advice at this point, some of our first advice around like how to write CNF. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> if that like straightforward approach isn't working for you, if you find yourself sitting down to write an experience, um, no matter what it is, even if it's like painful or happy, but it's like not coming together, which happens to me quite frequently. I know there's a lot of things I want to write about that like, I think that if you take a step back and you adjust your form, um, you know, we have a piece that uh, we got recently that um, is dealing with grief as well. Uh, on, right. On the same thread right. here. And the it was written as only, like, it was emails, but it's not an email, like, back and forth. It's just one mm-hmm. person's emails to a bunch of people we don't know about, like, why they're not going to be at work. And, like, throughout time. So it just has this, like, you know, sorry, I'm going on bereavement leave. You know, just these, like, really official professional ways of, like, it's so, it's so good. And I, I believe we will have, by the time this is released, definitely, we will have, like, said that we've either accepted or not this piece. But I haven't said their name or the name of the piece, but somebody's written it. So if you take it, just know you're stealing that idea. And that's okay, because we do that. (laughs) We're all inspired. Anyway, it's just, it's really, like, I found that piece very striking because it was, it's this, these other ways, just like I said, like, taking a a sideways look at your experience, because I think that can really give you an avenue into writing those things. Yeah. And something I need to do more, because often I just, like, sit down and, like, I'm going to write about the thing. I'm going to write about my friend's, my friend's death, or I'm going to write about childhood friends death all the things that i'm gonna do it yeah Yeah, but it doesn't it doesn't work that way it doesn't work that way it's also one of the reasons i am a huge proponent of second person which is a controversial stance to take but i love it especially as a first draft i don't think second person always has to live 
like your essay doesn't have to live and die in second person. But I think when you are handling any, when an essay is focusing on a big emotion, second person is a great way to not only in like just a craft level, ground you in scene, because you have to offer a physicality when you're in second person. And also to sort of allow deeper access into that emotional pool without feeling like you're getting overly sentimental or diving into dealing with the same things over and over again. That's always a fear I have because a lot of what I write about is very emotional. Like I'm just an emotional girl and it's very sensitive. And so it helps me a lot to sort of like ground myself in non-sentimental spaces. But, so I don't have to worry about getting like really, really overly sentimental. And I'm just like doing all this stuff about how sad everything is. <laughs> I am also a sentimental writer. I think I borrow a lot from um, the traditions of flowery language and overwrought metaphor or mixing metaphor for that matter. And I think that, yeah. that happens less honestly when you when you use that level of detachment. Um, I'm I'm actually a fan of sentimental writing um, if it's done well. I think there's, uh, we've still clung on to that modernism Definitely. belief that like, oh no, we don't like this like sentimentalism and um, we do. You just don't know it because when it's done well, <laughs> it doesn't feel like it. Exactly. Uh, right. That's the trick is to do it well. And I think it's, it is hard. I think at, at first, especially because the desire is to be like, no one understands. So I really need to explain why. I am so grief stricken. We've all felt those big feelings. And so you gotta trust your audience. That's my second piece of advice. Trust the audience. That is my advice for every piece of art that you will do ever. Like it is better to read something that for me, my opinion, to read something that is not explained at all than to read, like I would rather be moved and confused then feel so comfortable in a piece and what it's trying to tell me um, that the explanations are annoying. Holy the firm. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Okay. So, so, so uh, yes. So in our interview, you uh, back in December, you recommended Holy the firm uh, by Annie Dillard. Is that her name? Is it Annie Dillard or Erin Carson? Hold on. I think it's Annie Dillard, for sure. I think you're I, right. I don't know yeah, the other Annie name. Dillard. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> I have them both, and they sit next to each other on their bookshelf, so I'm just like, the Anne's. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you have the visual memory, and like the, they're very similar. So yes. you're, you're right there. Um, so I actually uh, have happily been able to get through a few books as a parent to a toddler. That doesn't really happen a lot. I've made it a point to try to get through a book every few weeks. Um, I actually got through two books yesterday. I read, I didn't pick up my phone all day and I just read two books, which was. Love that. I don't know, awesome. Amazing. Um, and one of them was Holy the Firm, which, I mean, I recommend it to anybody. I wrote immediately. I wrote in the middle of reading it because it was like, I had a lot of thoughts. It's invigorating <laughs> as a book. Like it's one of those books I read and I'm like, wow, writing. Oh I know writing. that I'm gonna, I didn't even want to put it on the bookshelf because I'm like, I know I'm going to want to read this again. Uh, it's, it's short. It's super Tiny. consumable. You could, if you, um, now that uh, in the UK, our lockdowns are lifting and in the US, there's a lot of places nobody was locked down. You can take this book to the cafe. <laughs> you can take this book to the beach. You can take this book anywhere and spend an hour or two reading uh, 
something that's, in, in my opinion, quite profound. But I, I wanted to bring it up in particular in this conversation because it is a bit about writing. It is a bit about about yes. that. I mean, it's a it's a bit about a lot of things. But um, one of the quotes from this, it, um, you get she doesn't tell you explicitly like we're just saying she doesn't really explicitly say a whole she doesn't lot. Explicitly say anything. <laughs> <laughs> <Like> hanging out. <laughs> Yeah, she's like, this is a this is a book that's like journal entries for the course of two days where it feels like you're her friend who already has the context of her whole life because yes. you don't. So you feel you feel those gaps, but um so there's a she's a teacher and she teaches writing. Um and she asks her students, uh, which of you want to give your lives to be writers? So I found that really interesting because I feel like that quote is really part of the old school of writing, in my mind. I agree. It's kind of part of the old guard. Um, it actually, as I, I was re recently reading a different book, Just Kids by Patti Smith, who did um, Horses, yes, of course. Yes. Oh, um, I love Patti Smith. Smith. Sorry, like an horses, absolute icon. Amazing. And Just Kids is really good, right? So it's about her in the 60s early 70s, living with Robert Maplethorpe, the photographer in New York, like hanging out at the factory, writing poetry, making art. And so a lot of that book, especially around like, I would say the last like one fourth is sort of like making horses after fame, you know, Robert Maplethorpe, of course, becomes very famous as a photographer. She's like a living legend at this point. So but the first like one third is really I mean, they're just like, dirt fucking poor barely making rent dedicating themselves to like the idea of art and like the idea of like dedicating yourself as an artist and that's like the most important thing you can do and so it reminded me a lot of that and the idea of like it's yeah the sort of old guard I think thought of art and I don't think it's wrong or right but the idea that you have to like dedicate your entire life to being this well, and it says a lot too. So I have I have thoughts about this as a mother and as a woman because mm -hmm. these experiences um, I think are quite often really antithetical to that idea. Yes. Uh, especially even even in Annie Dillard's book, like even there, she's like she talks about like what are you going to do right after the kids go to bed, and uh, you know, what's her name? What's her name? Did that quite famously. Um, yeah. <laughs> she wrote the the series that. I know what you're talking about. I'm like, yes, the lady. Yes, the lady <laughs> with the wizards. Anyway, <laughs> she quite famously like wrote her book when her kids went to bed or like at the cafe as well, because I don't know. There's a lot of mythology around when writers write and what they yes. do. And so the idea that that I got from from her and part of this old guard thing is that you can't really do that. Like you have to like it has to be part of what is embodied in your life. And I'm I am really really like tumbling around with that because right now I'm 32 my son is two years old mm -hmm. and I am writing more than I've ever written in my life and in one go because even well um maybe if I don't count high school where I was like writing in a journal and my poetry oh, every yeah. night but like, the high school writing experience yeah yes <laughs> yeah so I was like I was writing a lot more then that's fair but now I have, I live a life where there's a lot going on, where I'm asleep on my feet more often than not, um, 
where I'm sacrificing one thing to do another, or I'm just combining tasks. I'm brushing my teeth and folding laundry. You know, I'm doing Mm -hmm. a lot (laughs) to maintain uh, life for a family of four people in one house. You know, we do, we do a lot. So um, I, I've I've read an article and I really wish I remembered the name of it, but it talks about, uh, well, the article was like specifically about um, the monsters, uh, men, men being monsters and artists and like how much we forgive them and let them. So you have like, uh, for the sake of great art, this idea that like great art excuses like incomprehensibly bad behavior. Especially in men, right? And and they have this like freedom as, Hemingway and Picasso, um, mm-hmm. your greater morally more morally offensive artists like Woody Allen, who who are allowed the freedom because they're not parents because they aren't even if they have kids like they're not they're not parents. It's never a um, core part of their identity, despite how many children they might have, and most of them have many children. Um, they like, the, they like the sex part for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, it's I think when we when we look into that and and how it ties into the struggling artist um, is something for me as a writer that I, I grapple with. I look at it and um, this is part of my identity. Where do I find time to write? Where do I find time to be the writer? I quit smoking. Am I even a writer anymore? Like, I know that sounds like the most ridiculous statement in the world. Well, so many, when an identity, when a piece of your identity feels fragile, so many things feel like it could just hurt it, right? Yes. So like, yeah. if the idea, if identity as a writer, which I agree, yeah, it can feel very fragile as a person just like living who maybe doesn't have like, a, especially right now when it is so much harder, you can't really make money being a short story writer like you yeah. could a hundred years ago. You know, it's just like not really a profession in the same way. So it feels much more fragile. So it's like a constant proving of it. Like I am a writer because look at these things. I have my beret. I smoke. I produce one piece of work a week. Like, (laughs) yeah, I think that's something that is also part of the old guard, right? Too is like, is you, you centralize the identity of, of anything, not just being a writer, but anything. Um, If you're being paid to do it, then you are it, right? If you're a professional, professional, then that's what you are. So we see that, I mean, in across the arts and you give your life to it, you sacrifice what might be the more conventional life of having children or having a nine to five, or you do, you're poor, you do all these things and you push and you push. And then like, that is the true art. And so yeah. I just want to say that I am all for the new guard, <laughs> which is saying that <laughs> it's, it's the adoption of like, if you, if you do these things, like if you write, you're a writer, if you take photos, you're a photographer, if you like, you don't have to, you don't have to prove it to anybody. There isn't like, there are lots of associations for writers and artists. Okay. And maybe they want you to join, you have to prove things, but I mean, there isn't, (laughs) there's nothing in life that says you can't claim these parts of your identity. Yeah. So, if you're listening to this and you're wavering, like you're a writer. Congrats. You like we've just Welcome decided to the club. for you. Welcome. Um, I agree completely. And I think I also think part of that like sort of idea, I mean, both Patty Smith and Annie Dillard were writing these things, you know, like 60s, 70s, 80s, like 
where I think especially as women, you did basically have to be like, I am dedicating my life to this because there once anything else happened, that becomes the identity for women so often, right? Especially in that time period, I feel like we've gotten much stricter about, well, not really as a general public, but like my relationship is very lucky because I have a partner who supports me, supports my writing, picks up tasks around the house so I can write, like those things happen and it's not necessarily outside the norm anymore in the same way it would have been so outside the norm for Annie Dillard's partner to run the house while she's at a writing retreat for three months, you know, just like I mean, those kinds of concepts. You take all, you take, you look, take a look at like famous female authors throughout time. And if they had children uh, or if they had partners like Sylvia Plath uh, oh. or, right, <laughs> right. And her partner was like, we can talk about how he was well, a garbage like, man. Zelda Fitzgerald and F. Scott, Frida Kahlo and Diego, like with with especially two creative partners, there's always a um, hit against them, right? Like there's always yes. some kind yeah, of controversy gonna be, on whose gonna career be. matters. Yes, and like I I think about it, like I never dated a poet, and I always like kind of regretted because it's like oh nobody wrote poetry about me, like <laughs> <laughs> that would be really nice because I'm doing it for my partners, right? But yeah. but really, if you look at like like the ego of a lot of creatives, like they can they combat in such a way, and and oftentimes it's the the woman who gives or the femme or I mean like whoever's, whoever's one person has one to person give. Does. One, one, one person, person does, like, usually has to give, and unfortunately, often it is not, especially up until I would say very recently, it was not expected that they could both give a little. It was very often yeah. one person gives completely to do all the things that, I mean, running a house is a full-time job. There's a reason that it was a full-time job for most of time. It's a lot of work. Yeah. And, so and I think we have, we don't live in communities the same way that I believe we should. We, we live in a individualist capitalist society. So, so we're sequestered. Yeah. We don't have support of our communities in the same way. So Whereas, like, I, my ideal situation is that I live around like-minded people who share my values, who are happy to pass on skills and time for my children to teach them and spend time with them. And I can also have time alone to myself. Unfortunately, I live in a city where I know virtually nobody. And my oh. family is, like, 5,000 miles away. So, um it's really on us, <laughs> but my partner, yeah. that's the thing. Like I, I found a partner who like knew from the beginning, like even having children that I'm like, I'm going to make time. I'm going to carve out time to do the things that I want to do. And he's happy. He's happy that that's like, he's proud of me. He likes it. He's totally pleased that I'll do it. So that's amazing. And that's a recommendation. If you are looking for a partner, <laughs> find one yeah. that will let you have the time seriously and um helps cultivate that time because i think there is a difference between like okay i just won't bother them for these yes. 20 to 30 minutes versus like i won't bother them and i will do this thing that needs to be done <laughs> like notice my my toddler isn't here right now <laughs> my, yeah he's <laughs> he's off with his father doing whatever we're doing so it's very fortunate those are the those are the people that deserve poems and love letters that's, like, that's so true. It's the, the other poets, they don't. 
<laughs> they don't deserve this. Well, I, um, I was thinking about it too. I've been really obsessed with love letters lately and what they can be. I'm really into that lately. And it goes, I think, almost side by side with what we've been talking about and writing about grief in the idea of memorial memorializing someone. So I have two things for that because it's I have a I have a book of like the most famous love letters. Um is it the one they feature in Sex in the City first movie? <laughs> no, it was a gift, so it very well might be. I don't remember. <laughs> Anytime I go for a while, know. I've been looking up like books of love letters because I've read such beautiful ones, and it's always this Sex in the City book that comes up. <laughs> well, it's not like it's not advertised as the one, like at least on the book itself. So okay, I don't fair know. enough. Maybe, don't maybe know. not. <laughs> but in my like uh, my research for the poet that um, I wrote my dissertation on, mm-hmm. Edna Saint Vincent Millay, I have a book that is that was published uh, long after she she died of her mm-hmm. letters, and she was like an extensive letter writer. So she has like bits of poems and some and things, and it's really lovely to read you only have one letter like often like the the editor would add a bit of context but really not a tremendous amount so you it's an interesting format to have like a book of letters that tells a story of a lifetime but additionally if you haven't read a biography like the context is kind of bizarre uh and unreachable and funnily enough i have a book that uh, I think was a wedding gift for my husband and I. And it is something that we need to pick back up. But for a few years, we wrote love letters back and forth together in one book. I love that. How sweet. So it would be like, it's your turn. And I just like hand it to him. And then he would take it to work or whatever he was doing. Um, Mm -hmm. And then we actually had to really unfortunately right after we got married for seven months we had to spend apart because of uh immigration problems Mm -hmm. so i was and it it was all very like lucky because my mom was uh like at the end of her life and i didn't know that but like so it all it all worked out but it was seven months without my husband about three months after we got married so it was like (laughs) it was a it lot. was really upsetting, but we had that we like mailed this book back and forth. So we had Aww. we didn't so Yeah. Sweet. So they're all like in there. I kind of like I haven't gone back and read them. It's been a few years since we've written in them, but I think we should start it back up. Um I, love I think that, that so that like that definitely harkens to that idea of, of looking at our writing as writers in different ways, especially memoir writing. Yes. How we would I think one of my favorite, uh, there's an author friend of mine who also owns a book press, uh, J. David Osborne, mm-hmm. and he writes fiction, um, and he runs Broken River Books. If you mm-hmm. haven't, like, his books are so good. And, I mean, I guess, like, the most, the easiest way to describe them is, like, they're very gritty. <laughs> so he writes, one mm-hmm. of his books, uh, book series is about, like, life in this, like, poor area of Oklahoma, and you have, like, a lot of drug use, you have a lot of crime, but the dialogue and the interactions have this really natural way of occurring. And mm-hmm. it reminds me of when we write memoir because it's natural to read. Yes. You know, it's natural to read. I imagine the writing process is, is like evoking that conversational tone. It's approachable, which is something mm-hmm. that I value in writing. I value the unapproachable stuff. You know, like Annie Dillard isn't the most approachable. 
<laughs> no, not at all. Um, but it's not to say that like you have to write things that are that are that way. But definitely. Um, I think. Well, I think the trick is because I love Amy Dillard, and I agree. I like. I talk a lot about it with my students because I teach composition, so I teach like writing personal essays and like profiles and that kind of work. And I talk a lot about readability and thinking yeah. about your audience. So like being sure you're readable, which for a lot of them is, you know, breaking things up into paragraphs, talking about like full sentences, doing that kind of work. But it does come across in tone and conversational. And I think it's like you mentioned with the Annie Dillard book, it is not accessible sometimes. And there's like gaps and she gets really philosophical. But something she does really well, like you mentioned before, is the idea that like you're just her friend and you already know all this background context. So you're just allowed to sort of pick up into the context and just yes. run with it. <laughs> yes. And so I think like, too, like something that I found is valuable is that sort of writing, um, especially memoir, but it sounds like they are talking to their friends. So it has the yeah. colloquialisms, it's got their turns of phrases, but it also has their grammar. Like I'm interested in pieces that explore that personal use, that regional use of grammar or like not, even, it doesn't even have to be like, like the way that I talk isn't, I think, super distinctive regionally, right? Like I'm not going to write something and people are going to go, oh, the the dialect here is really amazing or anything. Yeah. You know, it's not profound. <laughs> it's just, but it is particular. It is something that if I write the, the way that I speak, then hopefully that that gives a clearer voice. I agree. I think something people do at first and I think this is can be seen in nonfiction and memoir is that unless they feel like they have to write like a very regional specific thing so like unless they are writing about like for me I'm from West Virginia so unless I am writing about West Virginia I have to inhabit this really like general voice and I have to really like engage in this like correct grammar rules and it's really interesting because I was reading through my thesis, which I just defended. So I'm talking about it with my professors and they're like, you use this turn of phrase a lot. And I'm like, yeah, well, that's just how we talk. Like, that's just how my family and I talk to each other is in this sort of like tone and this phrasing. And it's been really sort of, I don't know, reinvigorating to remember that that's part of what makes it really unique and fun is to engage in your culture and how it talks. I say that also because I've been reading. A Childhood, The Biography of Place by Harry Cruz. Speaking of not great men with great books, he's one of them. But it's especially interesting because I've been reading it side by side with The Woman Warrior by Maxine Kong Hingston. Um, oh, that's interesting. That's like an interesting combo for sure. It makes a lot of sense to me, actually, because I'm writing a paper about speculation in nonfiction. It's really interesting because they both engage in storytelling as part of their culture. And so, of course, Maxine Hong Kingston has, like, 50 pages of imagined scene, and that's a whole, like, different nonfiction topic we could talk about for literally an hour is just, like, the first 30 pages of this book. But it's really interesting because it directly engages with the way that her mother told her stories. And he does the exact same thing where he's talking about this is Southern storytelling, and this is as true as anything else, even if it's not true, it's true to me because that's how my culture engages with stories being from the deep South. And so there's something really engaging about that, even though they're from two different, totally different worlds and two totally different lives and time periods. 
is still like their engagement with the same material is different and interesting and unique because of how they sound and how they operate within that world. Yeah, definitely. I think that there are lots of ways to tease out the the nonfiction from the fiction as writers and also as, as listeners and people who are in our own cultures because we're constantly being told stories. Everything is a story. <laughs> so we're, we have to translate that somehow too. And like when we go into memoir and then, you know, we get into like the massive, cause this is probably a podcast that we can put on at another time is talking about the fiction oh, yeah. and nonfiction and how those lines are, um, Blurry sometimes. Genre bending, I think, is the academic term. (laughs) Sure, sure. (laughs) You can you can bend the genre. The line is like um, porous. You know, things come in, things come out. There's and and it works the same way with memory too. So we have a lot of like questions and and we use in fiction. We use a lot of like. use a lot of things like a reliable or non-reliable narrative to establish yeah. what is non-fiction in my fiction, uh, which is <laughs> right. kind of funny. But we're doing that. We're like, we're always sort of like teasing out truth and not truth, especially as academics as well. When you go and you academically read or analyze works as a reader, even out of, out of academic settings, you're, you're, that's what you're looking for. It's like, where is the truth? Your brain is doing it. Yes. It's like we look for triangles, right? Like visually we're, we're seeing faces, we're looking for triangles, we're finding truths. Yes. Well, and it's one of the reasons, you know, when we talk about pathos, logos, and ethos, ethos is just being, you know, looking for a reliable narrator. That's like ethos. It's one of the three pillars of writing. And it's for a reason, you know, I think in nonfiction, especially people are always looking for, um, especially like when you're looking for straight memoir, people are often looking for holes. Right. They're looking to punch holes and find it's the most annoying thing as a writer. And I love doing it as a reader. I'm like, can Vivian Gornick be trusted? And as a writer, I'm like, yes, I can. I think the really um, the book, I think I recommended it in our interview last time, but it's in gratitude. Yes. And uh, she has a bit about the truth. <laughs> it took me forever to get through that one. Anyway, um, it's excellent, but it just, it's set, it's set on a shelf for a long time. Um, about, she talks about the, the truth of it, right? So she talks about things. She's like, this isn't how, uh, she's talking a lot about her sort of like foster mother, for lack of a better word. That's not mm-hmm. necessarily who she was, but it's kind of her foster mother. She's like, this isn't how she would describe these things happening. Mm-hmm. This isn't how she would remember them. Uh, but really, like, does that matter? Does it matter that the people that I'm writing about had a different experience than what I'm writing about? Because this is how I remember it. And this is just, so as far as I can tell, I'm being truthful to you. I'm telling you the things that happened. And I think that there's a lot, a lot to that, because as as writers, when we go like, how do we write? How do we write memoir? How do we write CNF? How do you write true, true things when you are if you're a conscious person who's aware you've heard at some point, yeah. that memory is totally fallible. You can rabbit hole forever. You can <laughs> truly, you can rabbit hole forever. It's, I think, one of those things. And they're all, and that's the thing is that, like, it's true, though. Like, how do you write about people? How do you write about, what is the truth? What is the truth? How do you write about collective memory, which is something we talked about in our last interview, and the idea of, like, collective memory as a concept. And then I wrote a piece about collective memory. Yeah. And, like, and part of that piece writing it is that I was like, 
how do you how do you even remember things like how does memory work even all fake everything's fake right (laughs) so it's that too that like this isn't just going to impact your writing it's not going to be just like an aspect of oh i've got to sit down and write memoir you that translates into into questioning your own memory it translates into recognizing that even though you have like strong feelings and strong thoughts about something that happened to you or with you those things are going to look different through different lenses and that includes the people who also experience them and i think that's why we tell stories is to like conglomerate experience so we can find a truth yes I agree. And well, it comes back to, to what we were talking about at the beginning of the episode and sort of the idea it's an alchemy writing and it's an act of creation and creating new memories whenever you start to put those memories down into words. Yeah. Yeah. It's, so you're, you're doing that. You're reshaping and you're reframing. And, and so as, as a writer, when you go in, I think it's really valuable to, to take that away from what you put down on paper. So if you're struggling with how do I write this when I'm aware that like other people don't have the same experience or how do I write this when I'm aware that like this will upset somebody because they they didn't think that it was like this, but it is like this for me. So so just have that awareness. Like that's something that you will gain by writing. You'll gain that, that little bit of perspective. Those, That little key, I don't know, I found it's like a key to my life because it's allowed me to be a little more forgiving, a little more allowing of those perspectives, compassionate that the experience is going to be very different. Yeah, writing things down offers me uh, outsider perspective immediately, and so I become a more empathetic reader to the situation I was in. That's, that's amazing. <laughs> it's like the meta, the meta. Aspect. Very meta. Um, and of course, it's always worth mentioning when people are first writing memoir or, you know, been writing for years and years, you don't immediately have to like go out and publish everything. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's tough. I think, especially when you write a good piece, like, is this something I'm going to keep to myself? Am I going to reveal this? to the world and then on that note especially something i wanted to talk about in the last few minutes of our our podcast is is vulnerability because i will tell you as an editor and reading a lot of creative nonfiction, something that i've started to incorporate into uh some of our rejection letters is letting people know that like we felt that your piece lacked a vulnerability that we're looking for and i don't think that i mean that i need to see your snot and your tears or yeah. like your rage, but I need to see something. So can we talk about what vulnerability yeah. is to you as a writer? Well, I think Bruce Ballinger put it really well on this craft essay he has, which is called like talking about narrative logic. And he says it really nicely in that being able to recount a situation does not make it immediately engaging. And so just because you can recount word for word and situation and incorporate all these like physical details about just incredible things, forest fires, going in to save someone in the middle of a terrible drowning, you know, just like these insane things or these very mundane things. It doesn't make them necessarily immediately engaging. And it's offering that sort of like vulnerability as a very basic of just like, this is how I feel. And I felt this way and that really mattered and the situation matters to me because of my feelings 
that's what makes it interesting to me. And that's why I'll read anything. If you offer me that like emotional engagement, I'll read all of it. Tell me, um, Una Menchard has this great essay. I love her book. It's called Una Brow. It's so funny. <laughs> it's so funny. I recommend it to everyone because it was a reminder that nonfiction doesn't have to be like doom and gloom, which so much of my work is because, you know, I'm a big sensitive writer. But her work is hilarious and she's talking about some heavy things, but it's so good and funny and engaging and light. But she has this great essay that's just about her cleaning the stairs of her apartment when she was 20. And it's wonderful. And the act itself is very boring, but that emotional engagement behind it. And so just like that basic level of vulnerability has to be there for me to be engaged in the piece. But then I'll get into anything. Yeah, I think that's like the key is that if you can scratch the surface a bit and reveal something about yourself or about the world through through yourself, then I think that is the vulnerability. Like it doesn't have to be this like reveal all. It doesn't have to be an incident or like you don't have to showcase your trauma. You don't have to like, you don't have to take yourself to therapy on the page directly with us. Often I don't want that even. No, it's a lot. Usually, usually I do not. I think people innately are like, what's interesting about me. That's my memoir. The worst thing that ever happened to me. That's what I should write about. And I'm like, no, I don't want it. I don't want it. <laughs> um, take a minute, breathe in it, go to therapy, handle it, and then, you know, come back with some reflection. <laughs> See, I think that's, that's the key is like having a bit of reflection. And something that I say a lot as an editor, because I think I can forgive a lot if there's reflection. And that includes yeah. like, we don't, as like Epoch Press, like we don't want to publish anything that is like hurtful or aggressive. So we're not publishing any, any transphobia, homophobia, misogyny, like we're not doing that. Right. But if you have a story where those things are experienced, or even if you're like a perpetrator of some of these like really negative things, but you can provide me with like reflection on that. You know, if there's some, if there's some good work about it, then it's like, okay, this is something that we can, we can look at because it's not the topics aren't like, off the table we're not saying I don't think anybody is like we can't ever talk about having these feelings or whatever but having some insight into it and we've said no to pieces that were really good but they have moments where like they casually use like racial slurs that are more acceptable Mm -hmm. um uh like the calling Romani people the G word, mm-hmm. you know, which is which is like really common. But if we don't have like any reflection on the facts, like or using right. like Jew as a derogatory way to say cheap or whatever, right? Yeah. Like then you're like we had that in a story where where somebody had said that like they used it as a verb, like this person, did, but or they didn't they didn't use it. The author but didn't someone use it. Sorry, they were used like it. someone said it like mm-hmm. in it and I was just like I the whole story was very good and I get that someone else is saying this but without you having like a moment of reflection on that like to let us know that you don't also share this viewpoint or that this wasn't something I mean just I mean like it didn't have it's to be like, like a whole lot it's like but, when you read old F. Scott Fitzgerald short stories and there's just like really casual racism really heavily thrown in that has nothing to do with the plot and nothing to do. Like it's not, it doesn't <laughs> do anything. I'm just like, oh, right. You're a racist. Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> like, oh yeah. I keep remembering because I'm just like, oh yeah, it's there. Like, 
And like, I think historically a lot of that's really valuable. Yes. Because I think it's like, it clues us in to how people were acting and engaging, but that doesn't mean we have to act and engage. And I think I agree with you. Reflection is like a secret weapon everyone forgets about because we want to. So often I think people are like, I'm going to write it. And this just happened to me and I have a lot of big feelings about it. And they write, write, write. And then they just immediately send it out to publishers. And I mean, it's like talking about where we I keep being like when we were talking about grief earlier. Um, it took me a really long time to write that. And it's better because I had years and years of reflection to yeah, work with. Definitely. Definitely. I think that that's where we can find vulnerability, too, in in these reflections, because that's actually a lot of having feelings happens. Right. Like they just do out of and they're big and sometimes conflicting. And we can engage and sort of wrangle them better when you have just some time out. Yeah, I think. But I think, too, like the the vulnerable part of being a writer is exposing what you think about your feelings. It's exposing yes. what your feelings have done. What, yeah, like, that's a good way your, to put it. What is your sadness verb? Like, what did it run? Did it that's hide? the prompt for everyone. There you what go. did your emotions what did you really do? do? And then write about that. Like, what did like the event happened, and then you had feelings. But that's a given. That's what everybody's yeah. gonna. That's what, everybody's writing that. Everybody's writing about. And then, this sounds so callous. So please take this with a grain of salt because, like, I've been a victim in many ways in my life. Uh, but everybody's writing about their assault. I'm yeah. an editor. We get, everybody's writing about their we assault. We get a lot of it. And it's it's hard and it's sad and a lot of these stories need to be heard. But if that's what you're writing about, like what what did those feelings turn into? What was the what is the insight from beyond that? And I'm not saying that your pain or your trauma has to have an insight. Like that's so it's not required. Well, and sometimes that's the <laughs> insight, right? I thought that pain was supposed to make me better, but actually it's just been really fucking painful. Yeah, like that's yeah. an insight unto itself. Absolutely. Like it doesn't have to be profound. It doesn't have to be like, well, you know, like I was a victim of this crime or I was like harassed or whatever. And now like I work out four times a week and I'm really strong and I take Taekwondo. Like it's not like I'm yeah. not looking as an editor. I'm not looking for stories that, that have a moral. I'm not yeah. looking for you to, I actually hate morals. Um, If you send me a story with a moral at the end, I want to chop it off immediately. Um, I hate it goes back to I don't want to be told how to feel or think. Don't you got to trust me, the audience, to understand your pain to a certain extent. Don't tell me that now that you you have become stronger through it, because you know what? I've also written pieces about my assault. I didn't become stronger for it. That's it. That's okay. That's what I wrote about, and that's fine. But, like, I hate moral stories. That's what I'm saying. Don't send me I, moral stories. <laughs> I, think I, I think that's good advice. I know that, like, I know that there are pieces that we have decided we don't want to publish because it sounds like it's a lecture, in a like a moral lecture, not a teaching lecture. I mean, even yeah. those aren't great. But I always – the things – and I think it, one of the reasons workshops are great, this goes way back to the beginning, but one of the reasons workshops are great is because you learn what kind of writer you are when enough people tell you over and over again. So I was a chronic underwriter. I still am sometimes or I need to be like, oh, I need to explain why I was doing this. Um, and often I was told, chop off the last paragraph. I always like wanted to add a little wrap up, 
you know, like, and this is what we learned. Da, 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 da. And I think that is always good advice. Always chop off the last paragraph and see how it lands. Because so often we want to do a little wrap up. I love this advice. And I think I've, if you're open to it, I want to send you a piece of mine. That, Please do. Like, <laughs> some of the feedback I got on a piece was. Um, I'm going to tell you to chop off the end. <laughs> well, no, no. At the end, they were like, I was confused about what happened at the end. And I was like, I thought it was clear. I thought it was like, I sent it out to uh, to a press and mm-hmm. to a journal. And they were like. Yeah, so it just like I just didn't know what happened at the end. It didn't really feel like an ending. I mean, I've been told as a student <laughs> in my programs yeah. that like I really like your work, but it I don't know if they can be called short stories because there's like I guess not a story. I don't know. I think like I think they're short stories, and I, I I'll take that as a compliment because as I will we love weird anything. stuff. Yes, yeah, like anything. We love weird You're telling me I'm different in any way. Yeah, Thank send you. it to me. I would love to read it. <laughs> I'll tell you um, my insights on the end. I, I, I will very much appreciate it. Uh, I think, yeah, I'll, I'll have to remember. It's one of two pieces that I'm thinking of. But anyway, so I think if we want to just do a, a recap about what we what we think are, are sort of like how to write creative nonfiction and how to be a writer, how to live in the world. And right. Oh, world and right. Ugh, hard stuff there. Yeah, so uh, you don't have to give your life to be a you writer. You don't have to give your life to be a writer. That we think. I think that it's important. Yeah, I think. And I also think it's important to remember that writing, like everything in life, goes through seasons. I graduated college in my undergrad and I didn't write for two years other than to like say things into a notes app sometimes and like wrote some really terrible poetry when I was feeling like especially not even like inspired. I was just having like a big feeling and I was like time to write down sad poetry. None of it ever became anything. And I have been writing probably every week for the past three years. And after I graduate, maybe I don't write for a couple of months. I'm like, that's okay. Well, you so you can go through time seasons. I do, I do deserve some time off. <laughs> but we go through seasons just like anything. So maybe if you're not producing a ton of work right now, that doesn't mean that it's not gestating in some way. And like reading and reading other people's works and books and small pieces being published by current presses is an important part of writing. You get a lot of ins- read, read. Read. That's, read that's, always a, that's always a huge one because like finding time to read is really difficult. But also, I count it as part of my writing process now, which has helped me a lot in engaging with reading. <laughs> that's really I think that's really a good point. And also, um, this isn't like I'm not anti tech or like even really anti film. But I will tell you that I every so I try every Sunday to put my phone down for the day. It just doesn't always work. And I'm just forgiving. It either will or it won't work. And it's fine. But yeah. every time I do that, I write without fail, because I have moments where I think and I like, I don't have that with a phone in my hand. I don't really think I read other things on the phone. You do read on the phone. You do things. Yeah. Talk to people. It's important. But mm-hmm. the space and the time to let my thoughts as a writer go beyond just travel off of the path allowing yourself to be bored oh it's so valuable i just i um i do something very similar where i try to put my phone in another room for just an hour every day 
That's that's excellent. Just one hour a day is probably full hour. Just one full hour a day. I'm like, don't do this. And I'm still like on my laptop. I'm doing things, but I just don't have access to the literal phone. And that has been helpful to one in terms of my own feelings of dependency on my phone. But also, yeah, just like allowing myself to be bored and just kind of sit around and think about things and pick up books and read poems and just like do other stuff. So do that. Like take time and space and uh, cultivate relationships that support you taking time and space to be vulnerable with yourself, to look at your experiences and, and think about your experiences in broader terms. What did they do for you? What did the feelings do for you? What are you doing with them? Uh, Write about those things around the experience, right? The experience itself isn't um, going to be, the profound part. Yeah. Most experiences have happened to someone. A lot of people. A lot of people. Most experiences have happened. And so, I mean, and I think too, it goes back into reading is that like the way you tell it and the language you use in those reflections, that's, what's so engaging to me. Like Annie Dillard, who didn't write about anything like insane in that book. We keep talking about Holy the Firm. Like, she is at a retreat for three days. She is in her room for some of it. She's like, there's the plane crash, which is sort of extraordinary unto itself. But it's not like no one else has ever been near a plane crash, you know? No, and it's not like, I think she kind of like draws on that as well. I think you're right. Like, it's not, it's not even a major part. It's a major part of the book in a way, but it's such a small part. It's a small singular part. Yeah. And she's not in the plane crash she's not involved i don't think she even like is near that close to it when it literally happens it's just her kind of thinking about it but because of the prose she's using and the language she's using and the way she tells it i would read her like writing about each name in the phone book and just like her thoughts on them (laughs) i just read anything (laughs) she does because it's so engaging the way she does it so i think that's like the that links us back to one of our first pieces of advice is to take a sideways look at your experiences so Definitely. not just your own feelings and your insights but to to look at the experience just a little bit askew and you can do that in form and you can do that in your prose and your diction because you can um one thing that Annie Dillard does well in that book, which is even when she's writing about the plane crash or writing about any of it really is she does this thing where she like dips in and dips out. Mm-hmm. And you see that, I've seen that a lot in memoir writing, that's especially like shorter writing where people yeah. can do that. Um, and it, what it does as a reader is you like go on this ride, right? Like you come in and you all of a sudden you're like, and that's uh, when I heard the the plane crash uh, but that was last Tuesday or whatever. I mean, like, this is, this isn't writing. This isn't good. <laughs> but, like, you, you, it's true. It dips into, it's like, a moment. It merges and you down. Out. It's really genius when it can be done well. I think, actually, I'm always, <laughs> I can't stop recommending books because I read all the time. Um, <laughs> Henry James' Portrait of a Lady, perfect example of it. Just dipping into moments and places and scenes and then bringing you back out. He's perfect. It's just, like, little potholes. I'm. Uh, I've written down like six books. So I can't stop. People in my class say the same thing, where they're like, "Kirsten, <laughs> you have to control yourself." 
read, 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 right? Read. Go out and read because you're going to be inspired. You're going to find different things. Also, uh, you are a writer. Did you, mm-hmm. is that what you want to do? Is that something that you, you feel like is part of you intrinsically? Have you not written a page in 10 years? You're still a writer. Yeah. I always, I always said I was, I'm a writer who doesn't write. Yeah. It doesn't make you less of a writer, I don't think. Now that I'm older, I look back at that and I go, I'm just a writer. Just You're just that. a writer. You were just, just, well, that's the thing too. I'm like, it's not bad too. I can, I count a lot of things as part of my writing process, which I think kind of helps me be more lenient with myself. Reading counts, like exploring. And especially when we talk about reading, I think so often people are like, oh, I need to read like officially published books. Like I need to be reading. Mm. Fun home. I need to read Holy the Firm. I need to read Childhood. Like I need to read, but like go online and just read the stuff that people you like are publishing in. Like small lit journals. Read Epoch. You know, yeah, like yeah, read, <laughs> read yeah. Brevity. Like read <laughs> online journals. Especially so many of those pieces are shorter. So if you are stretched for time, you can engage in really interesting stuff that is maybe more within your there's time a, frame. There's a there's a lit journal out there that is like exclusively written for pieces that you can read on the train, on your lunch break, on Smoke the way long. to the bathroom at work. What which one is it? Smoke long, right? It's the That's- idea you can read it while you're having one cigarette. Oh, there's that one. There's another one. There's tons of them, right? Like, the tube. It's, I think it has something to do with like being on the train. I can't there's remember. So many, especially there's so the many, especially past year, especially there are so many things coming out. So it not only can generate you, it also helps in terms of part of like my publishing process where I'm like, oh yeah, I like what they're writing. I write like this. I won't going to send my stuff or I like write the writing. I don't write anything like this. I'm going to work on something that new people <laughs> take. <laughs> and you don't have to, like, the good thing about doing the indie presses and going around and just finding yeah, finding ones that presses. publish for free, lots of them publish for free. I've yep. read uh, a few of Kirsten's stories because they're right there on the website. I've got a few publications you can check out. Um, but We you, love online you publishing. Find, you can do that. Yeah, no, it's great. It's great. Um, I often backtrack, actually, now where I will, if I find a piece, like, floating around on the internet or even like a text I will look them up and backtrack into their old publishing work and oh, then yeah. go based on those journals and like branch out it becomes like a whole little network of me just being like I wonder what else Leslie Jordan has written <laughs> <laughs> that's so good I get like I don't I don't everything is like self-contained I finish the thing I'm like that's good I might that pick them up good. later, but my my to read pile is like fifty books big. I'm just like I'm dedicated to getting it down. But yeah, I, of course now yeah. I've got like six more to add to it after this conversation. So of course, uh, and then um, want to take a second. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, I was going to say also writers that most of us also do some kind of publishing gig, mostly volunteer and reading what they're doing on that end. You know, like yeah. pick up Epoch if they like. I'm like get by you. Look at my beautiful copy of By You. Um, isn't it so pretty? You can't see it. We're on a podcast, but it's <laughs> so beautiful. It's really pretty. And so, I mean, these are the stories that I think were the best that we got, basically. And so, like, it just connects you to a whole new network from there. Yeah, definitely. I think I've uh, – there's nothing that's been as inspiring to me as working with other writers, as reading other short pieces. Really Creating a community. Yeah, it's creating a community. It's been amazing. Every time I get off the phone with you, I'm like, I write. 
So it's super cool. Um, and if it's you always go ahead generative. And, yes. Yeah. It's and it, like it compounds. So there's a big return on investment when you invest in your community in every way. In every uh, way. <laughs> join your local mutual aid group, please. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, so why don't you go ahead and tell us a bit about where people can find you and your work? So you can find me. I have a website, which I pay a lot of money for. So please go look at it because I check the analytics all the time. It's www.kirstenreneau.com. I literally have it pulled up in the corner right now because I was just editing it. Um, I am also on Twitter at Renoglow, R-E-N-E-A-U-G-L-O-W. This is also all linked somewhere on the Epoch site. If you go and search for my name, you can find all these links under things I have written and interviews I have done, piece I have published, which is very exciting. Um, and so please follow me on the Internet so I can quit my day job. I would love to just be on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I want to give a big thank you to our music manager, Party, for composing the music for this uh, podcast. Nice. And a big thank you to our guest for taking part in the discussion today. Thank you, Kirsten. Oh, my gosh. Thank you. I love being here. I love being able to work with Epoch Press. You all are such a delight. If you are listening to this, you should all send work for their upcoming issue. Yes, we just announced the theme, so uh, you might have seen that. That is um, Resistance is the theme for issue four. Great theme. Yeah, really cool. Excited to see it, the way everyone explores that. Everyone should submit to Epoch Press. It is a great press to work with. I am very appreciative of this relationship that we have been able to cultivate. (laughs) I love it. Thank you so much for inviting me on. (laughs) Not a problem. And um, if you're wondering, uh, Kirsten will probably be on the podcast again because this is a pleasure and a joy to do. Hopefully a joy to listen to as well. And that's me, Samantha Mosca, and my guest, Kirsten Renault. Thank you for listening to the Epoch Hour, bringing you truth on tape. 